Well, you can keep your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 5. This morning, I want to start by talking about advertisements. Advertisements. So, we probably don't think about advertisements very often, but they are a huge part of our lives. Did you know that between TV, social media, billboards, websites, yard signs, etc., that you see between 4,000 and 10,000 advertisements every single day. 4,000 to 10,000. Now, here's what's crazy. If you do the math, you, were only, you only awake 960 minutes every day, <laughs> and yet you see that many advertisements. Now, here's the interesting thing. If you think that's a lot, it's because we actually only notice about 100. <laughs> but we are inundated. We, are, we have these advertisements coming at us all through the day. And as we probably know, it's big business. In 2021 alone, Meta made $115 billion just by advertising things to us on Facebook and Instagram. Okay. That's how they're making their money, is advertising stuff to us. So here's what I want to ask. What's the goal? What's the goal? Why, why are they doing this? What are they, what are they trying to convince us of? Well, here's what I would argue this morning. And this, this really sets us up for the study on the Sermon on the Mount. I would argue, if you pay attention, what these advertisers are trying to do is they are trying to convince us that they know what it means to live the good life. That if you just do the thing they're telling you to do, buy the thing that you're telling them to buy, that you will have the good life. And sometimes they flip it and they're a little bit more negative and they say, this company or this politician is trying to take the good life from you. But that's what it all is around, trying to convince you that they know what it's about to live the good life. And so you should give them, their, you should give them your money in order to have that. I mean, here's an example. So you can throw that advertisement up there, Matthew. This is just an ad. I just typed in advertisement on Google Images and grabbed one of the first ones I could find. It's just a picture. But can't you see what it's trying to communicate to us? Drink Coke and you'll be better looking, right? <laughs> you'll be really good looking. Drink Coke and you'll be happy. Drink Coke, you won't be lonely anymore, right? Like all it takes is this little drink filled with corn syrup <laughs> and you will, you'll have everything you ever wanted. That's the message that is coming to us all day, every day. That's what it's all about. So as we begin the Sermon on the Mount, we have to start by asking a question. Does Jesus know what the good life is? Because that's what Jesus is going to do. For the next six months, we're going to be studying the Sermon on the Mount. And this is what we're calling life in the kingdom. This is Jesus' kingdom manifesto. This is what Jesus says the good life is. Here's the question you have to ask yourself. Does Jesus know what he's talking about? Does he know better than the Coke advertisers? <laughs> Does he know what he's talking about? And so before we get into this, I, I just, I feel like we need to stop. I feel like we need to pray. Because here's the thing, I, I don't think any of our preachers can convince you that Jesus knows that. We're going to try our best, okay? We're going to prepare for this. But for you to get anything out of this sermon series for the next six months, you have to be convinced that Jesus knows what he's talking about. And so let me just stop and pray that he will do the hard work of convincing you of that and open up your heart to that. So let me, let me just stop and pray for us. Dear Lord, I, I, I come to you just before we get into this series. I feel like this could be a big, 
time for our church where you could change lives. As we, as we see Jesus' words here, as we read Jesus' words, as we meditate on Jesus' words about what the good life is, I know that we may be sitting here listening to these sermons say, yeah, that sounds great, and then we leave here and we go back out into our lives and we quickly forget. We quickly get sucked up into all the advertising that we're seeing throughout the day, all the other things, all the, the lies that, that the devil tells us about what the good life is. Lord, we need you. I ask that you will just use this season in our church. Use this season to show us what discipleship is all about. Use this to show us that Jesus was truly the smartest, wisest man ever to live, who knew what it, what it meant to live the good life. Help this cause us just to follow and live that kind of life. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Speak through me and your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So here's how we're going to get started. This morning we're going to have two points. Two points. Here's the first one that we need to see. If we're going to understand the Sermon on the Mount, I think we need to understand this. First of all, we need to see the meaning of discipleship. The meaning of discipleship. You see the first verse here. Here's how the whole thing starts. Matthew tells us this. It says, seeing the crowds, he being Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So here, as Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, there's these two groups. There's the crowd, and then there's the, the disciples. And if we're going to understand this sermon, we need to understand what it means to be a disciple. And if we're going to understand what it means to be a disciple, we actually need to understand what it means that Jesus himself was a rabbi. Okay? He, was a, he was a teacher, so if you pay attention, if you read through the Gospels over and over again, you'll see people addressing Jesus, and you'll see more often than not that they refer to him by this title, Rabbi. Sometimes it's translated in our, our translation as teacher. It's the same word. It's 60 times throughout the Gospels when someone comes up to Jesus, the word they use to describe him is Rabbi. Okay? It's Rabbi. That, that's what he was. He was going around, and he was a Jewish rabbi. And Rabbi Jesus does the things that rabbis in this time would do. So first of all, that's why he's teaching here, and that's why people are listening, because they're listening to teaching from a rabbi. He's a teacher. He has authority. He's teaching with authority. But he'd also go out, and he would do something else that rabbis do. He would go out, and he would recruit disciples. Okay? He would find these people, and he would call them to follow him. Here's just a few examples Okay, you probably know these already, but here's a few examples um, just, just throughout the Gospels. Matthew 4, 19. It says, and he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Matthew 9, 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. John 1, The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. So you get the point. Jesus is a rabbi calling disciples, and the, word he uses, the words he uses for them is to come and follow me. Now, why does that matter? Because he didn't stop doing that with the first 12 disciples. He's still doing that today. This is the calling, right? If you are a Christian, then you are called to be his disciple. If you are a Christian, there was, at a, there was a time where Jesus said, follow me, and you said, okay, that, that's what a Christian is. It's someone who is a follower 
of Jesus. That's what it means that we are disciples. Now let's talk about that word disciples. Disciple in the Greek, it's the, it's the Greek word mathetes. This is crazy. It occurs in the New Testament 269 times. Now for reference, the word Christian is only in the New Testament three times. But mathetes, disciple, shows up throughout the New Testament, especially in the Gospels. And so here's what I want to talk about this morning, is what does that actually mean? Because there are certain words, there are these churchy Bible words that we hear them so often, we say, well, yeah, I'm a disciple. Yeah, I'm making disciples. But we hear it so often, we actually don't hear it anymore. You understand what I'm saying? I think I've told this story before back in our, in our church that we served in in Austin, Texas. Uh, the, the church, it was just horrible planning. I don't know why they did this. But the church, the auditorium where we met for worship was directly across the street from a train track. And it was loud. <laughs> like it was like, like you could hear it. Like it didn't matter if we were singing or hearing the preaching. It didn't matter. It was loud. And it was amazing. There's this little thing you could do. You could always tell who the new people were <laughs> because we would be in worship and the train would go by and you would see like a handful of people throughout the room jump out of their seats when the train goes by. But the rest of us, we had heard it week after week after week after week. And we didn't even notice it anymore. Words become like that. Right? So we hear this word disciple and we think, yep, disciple, got it. I know what that means. But do you really? <laughs> Do you really? Let me do something that I think is helpful, okay? Disciple, it's the right word, it's the right translation, but let's do this. Let's use a synonym, just to mix it up in your, in your head a little bit. Let's use a synonym for this. I, I considered using the word Padawan, okay? I knew that would make sense to Josh and Leanne, okay? But if you don't know Star Wars, okay, that won't make much sense. So let me do a different one, okay? Let me do a different one. Apprentice. To be a disciple of someone is to apprentice under them. Anyone ever been an apprentice of any kind? Yeah, anyone done an apprenticeship? Zero? Really? Okay. Well, let me, oh, we got one. We got one in the back. Nice. Okay. Well, here's what it means to be an apprentice. If you're going to apprentice, let's say that you're going to be an apprentice plumber. What you do is you come in and you, you don't know what you're doing at that point, but you look at that plumber and you say, I want to follow you. And so what you're going to do is you are going to go around with him and you're going to go to all the work sites he goes to. You're going to watch the way that he uses the wrench. I don't know anything about plumbing, but like I, he's down there doing his thing, whatever he's doing. You're going to watch that. You're going to maybe pick it up and do it, do it yourself with him you know, checking over you. You're going to watch everything that he does. You're, wherever he goes, you're going to be with him. And the hope is that after a while, over time, you stay you, right? You never stop being you, but over time, you look more and more and more like him. You begin to act like him. You begin to do the things that he does. All of a sudden, have you ever spent time with someone, maybe a boss or something, where all of a sudden you find yourself using words and phrases that they use without even thinking about it because they've rubbed off on you? That's the goal of apprenticeship, to be so close to someone, to imitate, with the, to imitate them with your life, that as you're living, you begin to look like them. And discipleship in this time, when Jesus is calling disciples, it was a lot crazier than that. <laughs> it was a lot more of a commitment than that. As a plumber, you get to go home and stop being a plumber. And as a disciple, you never stop being a disciple. It is a 24-7 commitment. It becomes your identity. 
Your identity is found in the fact that you are a disciple of this person. When a rabbi calls you to follow him, you say yes to it with your whole life. I thought this was interesting. There was actually a Hebrew blessing that people would say back in this time. They would say this to people who were coming under a rabbi. They would say, may you be covered in the dust of your teacher. Isn't that an interesting image? May you be covered in the dust of your teacher. As you're out there walking down the roads that aren't paved, right, there's, there's dust flying up everywhere, stick so close to him that the dust from his feet gives all, gets all over you. That's discipleship. Watch him. Imitate him. Do what he does. So what does that have to do with us? I hope you can see it. The call hasn't changed. When Jesus called you to be his disciple, when he called you to be his apprentice, this is what he called you to. Not to go to church on Sunday mornings. That's, that's, it's not just that, right? He didn't call you to compartmentalize your discipleship where it's this little part of your week. He called you to completely reorient your life to following him. Everything, your, your job, right? Your family, your personal life, the things you do in secret are all about following him, being his apprentice. It's who you are. It affects every single area of your life. So when you become a disciple, you completely rearrange your life to that end. Okay. Have you done that? That's the question we got to ask. Have, have you done that? Or are you coming here on Sunday mornings, putting on a nice face, speaking the lingo, and then walking out and not following him with your whole life? He didn't leave that option open to us. <laughs> That's not the option. It's all or nothing. Okay? There's no middle ground here when it comes to following Jesus. He's either someone to give your complete life to, or he's nothing. <laughs> Crown him as king or shut him up as a liar your only two options. Now, how do we live as a disciple of Jesus? That's the question. If this is the call, what does that look like? Well, praise God, Jesus gave us the Sermon on the Mount, right? Like, that's what this is. If you're asking that question, what does it look like to actually follow Jesus? Let's look at the Sermon on the Mount. So let's go there, okay? Let's go there. We'll actually get into the passage here in a bit. But I want to talk about this really quick, the Sermon on the Mount. I want to talk about a really big question here. That, because if we do not get this question right, then the next six months are going to be for nothing. Okay? Here's what we have to understand. What we're going to see as we get into the Sermon on the Mount, what we're going to see is that Jesus is going to, first of all, this, this is amazing. I want you to think about this. Jesus preached this 2,000 years ago, and there's never going to be anything that he says that isn't relevant for our lives in 2023. How crazy is that? Okay? Like, wouldn't you expect if this guy is just speaking in Galilee 2,000 years ago that there's going to be a lot that we have to go, not for me, not for me, not for me. Oh, that's good. But you're going to see, it all applies. Like, this is a guy who understands the human condition. This is a guy who understands what it means to live. So that's the first, the first thing I want you to see. Here's the other thing I want you to see. He's going to raise the bar high. I mean, over and over again, he's going to say, you've heard it said, but I say this, and he doesn't lower it, he ups it. <laughs> he makes it harder. And what that's caused some people to say is that the Sermon on the Mount, because what Jesus is doing is he is just casting an impossible ideal. This is a utopian, 
unattainable standard that we can never reach. I need you to get this if you're going to get anything from this sermon or from this, from this whole series. That is a lie. Okay? That is a lie. Jesus is not just casting a utopian ideal here. He is giving us an attainable vision for living in the kingdom. Okay? An attainable vision for living in the kingdom. Now, is the vision Jesus gives here attainable by everyone? No. Okay? Is this vision attainable if we do it on our own power? No. No. But remember what Jesus said. Okay, remember, let's go back. Remember John 3, his conversation with Nicodemus. Okay, you remember this. The, the religious leader, Nicodemus. Remember this, he's, he's talking to Nicodemus, and he says this crazy line. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So for those who aren't born again, of course this is not attainable. <laughs> of course they can't live life in the kingdom. But for those of us who are, these are our marching orders. This is his kingdom manifesto. This is what it means to live life in the kingdom. Okay? Look, let me make this clear, okay? We preach this every week. The gospel says you cannot do it, right? The gospel says you've blown it. The gospel says that you are dead in your trespasses and sins, okay? Now, amen, the gospel also says Jesus came and lived the perfect life you couldn't live. He died the death that you deserve, right? And through him, even though you have fallen short, you can be saved, amen. But we can't stop there. What does it also say? You now have the power. <laughs> you now have through him the Holy Spirit living in you, and you have the power to grow and change and mortify sin. Get rid of it and look more and more and more like him. Okay? We can't stop there where the gospel just says, Jesus did it for us, and now I can say, well, that means I don't have to change. No, right? Faith without works is what? Dead. Okay? Faith without works is dead. We trust in Jesus. He gives us the power to actually live this out. Let me try to convince you, okay? Let me just, in case you're not convinced, let me try to convince you. Let's go to Matthew 28. It'll be up on the screens. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. We call this the Great Commission. At this point, when Jesus gives this, he, he's risen from the grave. He spent 40 days with his disciples. He's about to ascend into heaven. And here's what he says. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. Okay? Let me point two things out. First of all, look at that make disciples. Okay? Underline there, make disciples. Okay? We've talked about what a disciple is. Giving your whole life to Jesus. Notice what he does not say. He does not say, go out and make converts. He does not say, go out and give a compelling speech and get people to write their name on a card and say a prayer and then move on with their lives. Okay. That's not the call. The call is to make disciples. The call is to invite people to give their whole life to Jesus, not just look to him for fire insurance. That's the call, to make disciples. That, that's, that's hard. That's a big calling, but that's what we're called to. And then look at this. 
He says, well, here, what should we do as we're discipling them? What should we do? We should teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. So here's my question to you. Is Jesus playing a really nasty prank here and giving us a mission that is impossible to do? I don't think so. What this implies then is that it is actually possible to teach someone to follow his commandments. You see that? We don't just go and say, oh, don't worry about the Sermon on the Mount. That's a utopian ideal. No, we're teaching them how to be followers of this. We're training them to become people who routinely live out the Sermon on the Mount. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not arguing that we can ever reach perfection in this life. Sin will still be present, right? We will never be able to perfectly live this out. We will always fall short. However, as you look back over your life, you have to ask the question, am I becoming more and more and more the type of person who lives this out? That's the question for us. Are you changing? Does this sermon describe you? When we get to Jesus telling us not to be angry or not to lust or not to be anxious, we can't throw up our hands and say, well, that's impossible. In a sense, yeah, sin is, is pervasive. I, I get it. But are you fighting? <laughs> are you fighting to live this out. We need to realize that Jesus is saying that apprenticeship to him will form us into people who actually, in reality, live this out. If you are a follower of Rabbi Jesus, these are your instructions on how to live. If you have bowed the knee to King Jesus and said, I am throwing out my kingdom, let it crumble, I am following you, then these are your marching orders to be radically different from the world. That's discipleship. Okay, that's it. That, that, the meaning of disciple. That is discipleship. It is a whole life orientation. It's hard and it's costly. In 1937, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book that has become a Christian classic. And, and it's a Christian classic for good reason. reason. It's not an easy read. It's challenging, but it's totally worth your time. And the book is called The Cost of Discipleship. Okay, go, go put it on your list. Put it on your Amazon list. Go check it out. I promise you. But here's what's amazing. I, one of the things that really stuck out to me from reading this book. Bonhoeffer talks a lot about what he calls cheap grace. You ever heard this before? Cheap grace. And here's how Bonhoeffer defines cheap grace. Cheap grace is this completely false idea that you can go to Jesus, you can have him forgive you of your sins, but never actually follow him, never actually become his disciple. It's the people who read the Sermon on the Mount and think, well, I don't actually have to live that because Jesus died for my sins. It's cheap grace. It's a grace that doesn't cost you anything. And what he's arguing is that there is a cost to discipleship. Discipleship comes with a cost. He says it this way, his famous line. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Isn't that good? When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And no, Bonhoeffer didn't make that up. <laughs> That's straight from Jesus. Here's Matthew 16, 24, another follow me passage. It says, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There is a heavy cost to discipleship. It is not something that we enter into lightly. So maybe that's the question you need to ask yourself too. As we go into the Sermon on the Mount, is this something that you actually want to enter into? Because it is giving 
your whole life. But that takes us to point two. Okay? Bonhoeffer talked about the cost of discipleship, but I want to point out this morning that there is an even greater cost to non-discipleship. The cost of discipleship is great, but the cost of the non-discipleship is actually far greater. Remember how we started out this, this morning talking about advertisements. Everyone is trying to just convince us what it means to live the good life. What does it look like to get the most out of my life? And we're all asking that question. That's why they do that, right? Like the, the marketers know what they're doing. The reason they're answering that question is because they know that that's the question that we're all asking. Every single human being wakes up in the morning and asks, what does it mean for me to live my life to the full? Okay? That, is, that is the vision that we all have. That is what motivates us to do anything that we do. And so here's what we do. In order to figure out how to live the good life, we're all a disciple of someone or something. We, you know, it may not be Jesus. It may be something else. But we all look to someone or something and say, I'm going to follow you because I believe that you can give me the good life. That's what we're all doing. Let me give you an example. I'll stick with Dietrich Bonhoeffer here. This, this amazing, amazing, amazing man. Um, back in the 1930s, as I said, he was writing Cost of Discipleship. Now, here's what we need to know. When he was talking about cheap grace, he did not have 21st century Americans in mind, okay? Because he was living in 1930s, and he was living in Germany. Okay? And so Bonhoeffer saw something happening in the 1930s that was really alarming to him. He was seeing Christians... The church, pastors, church leaders, people who say they believe the Sermon on the Mount and were living it out and believe the Bible, they saw them not pledging allegiance to Jesus, but pledging allegiance to Adolf Hitler. And that, as you can see, <laughs> as you can imagine, got Bonhoeffer a, real, a little riled up, a little concerned. But he went on the offensive. Here's what he did. He actually went out, and this was illegal. He wasn't supposed to do it, but he did it anyway. Praise God. He goes out and he starts this training program, this underground seminary that, that, that Hitler and the Nazis didn't know about, and it was called Finkenwald Seminary. And he brought this group of Christians together, and he talked about their mission statement one time, and it's very simple. Here's what he said. What are we going to do at Finkenwald Seminary? We are going to actually live out the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> we are going to actually take the Sermon on the Mount seriously. That's all they were going to do. We're going to get together, and we're going to train people on how to actually live this message out. Well, one day, Bonhoeffer got a visitor, and it was a friend he hadn't seen in a little while, but this friend knew what Bonhoeffer was doing, and he'd read some of the literature that had been put out. He'd heard, some of the, he'd heard about some of the sermons that Bonhoeffer had been giving, and he wanted to come talk Bonhoeffer out of it. He thought he was being crazy, a fellow Christian. And so he came, and he, he, he got Bonhoeffer out of, the, out of the Think Involved Seminary, and he brought him to the side, and he said, look, we need to talk. Don't you think you've gone a little extreme? Don't you think that this is a little much what you're doing? <laughs> and here's what Bonhoeffer did. I, I love the picture of this. Bonhoeffer, it said, didn't even say a word. Just motioned to him to walk with him. So they start walking, and they walk for a while, and then they walk to this rowboat. And then they get in the rowboat, and they row down the river. And then they park the rowboat. And then they walk up this hill. And when they get to the top of this hill, you can see for miles. It's this beautiful view. And down below, there was a Nazi training center. 
training soldiers for Hitler and Bonhoeffer. And it, well, let, me, let me say this. What were those people doing? What were those people doing? They thought that that was going to bring them the good life. Right? Like, it's crazy for us to look back on it, but they thought Hitler was going to bring them the good life. That's what they were training for. But here's what Bonhoeffer did. He looked down, then he pointed back at Finkenwald Seminary, and he said this, our discipleship has to be stronger than their discipleship. You see that? Our discipleship has to be stronger than their discipleship. They have become disciples of Hitler because they think that's what's going to bring them the good life. We have to disciple people harder and better and stronger because we have the keys to true life. See that? Bonhoeffer truly believed that life is found in discipleship to Jesus. And he didn't make that up. Jesus made the same claim for himself. John 10.10, Jesus says this, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now let me just say, I don't think Jesus is only talking about eternity. That's definitely included. But Jesus is saying all those other things that are telling you if you become a disciple of them, you'll have life to the full. That's a lie. Straight from hell. True life. A true life of flourishing. The life that you have always wanted <laughs> is only found in discipleship to me. That's the claim he's making. It's a bold claim, but that is the claim that he is making. And that takes us to, to the Beatitudes. And don't get worried. We're, we're, we're not going to spend much time on them. But that takes us to the Beatitudes, verses 3 through 12. These are nine statements. You see them there in, in your Bible. Nine statements, and they all begin with the word blessed. They all begin with the word blessed. And let me just say, these Beatitudes we're going to see play themselves out in the rest of this sermon. So we're going to be talking about these for the next six months. You're going to see these things play themselves out. So what I want to do this morning is just really orient us to what these are trying to do. I want to orient us to these nine statements as a whole. What point is Jesus trying to make? And if we're going to understand that, I think we need to really understand one word. Blessed. Blessed. Okay? See that in, in the passage, right? Blessed. Over and over again. Blessed is the. Blessed is the. Blessed is the. Jesus is describing someone who is blessed. Now, here's my concern. That's a great translation. The Greek word there is makarios. Blessed is a fine translation. I'm not concerned by that. Here's what I am concerned with. I'm concerned with our understanding of what it means to be blessed. Okay? Because we hear that word blessed, and I think, and maybe I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush, maybe this didn't apply to you, but I think the way we typically hear this is when we hear blessed, we think of it like a vending machine. Right? You give a dollar, and the candy comes down. Okay? So how do you live a blessed life? I do this thing, and Jesus gives me the blessing I'm looking for. You see that? Right? Can anyone admit that maybe that's how you think of blessing? Because I, I find myself thinking about it like that. What does it mean to be blessed? Well, I do this thing, and then God responds and gives me what I deserve. Here's what we need to see, though. That, that is not what is being called for here. That, that is not the message here in the Beatitudes. Let me give you an example. Okay, let's go to another passage. Psalm 1. Okay? The first psalm is one of my favorite psalms. Let me read it here. It says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, 
nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So if you understand blessed how I just talked about blessed, let me tell you how you might understand this passage. Okay, so if I get up and I read my Bible and I say a prayer, then the rest of my day I'm going to have blessings coming at me, right? Because I've meditated on the law. And so as I go through my day, now God has to bless me, right? Because he says here, blessed is the man who knocks, walk, walks not in the counsel of the wicked, right? So if I don't do this, if I don't walk in the counsel of the wicked, if I read my Bible, then blessings are sure to come. But here's the problem. That, that's not the promise here, okay? That's not what he's saying. Here's what, what the psalm is actually saying, is it's giving us a vision for how we flourish. I'm, I'm going to use that word, okay? Flourish. This is a vision for what it means to live a life of flourishing. So we could actually translate it like this. Flourishing is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Flourishing is the man who meditates on the law day and night. And here's how we know that, because here's verse 3. It says, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. And all he does, he prospers. Do you get the point? Okay. It's not meditate on the law, get blessed, right? Get everything to go your way. It's meditate on the law, and you become like a tree that never dies. And even as the seasons change, even as the hard challenges come, even as things that you could never imagine take place in your life, they actually happen right? Even when you have this doomsday scenario in your mind, and it actually comes, catastrophe happens, you flourish anyway. Like an evergreen tree that even through the snow coming in just stays green all year long, you will continue to flourish no matter what the circumstances are around you. Do you see the difference there? <laughs> it's not read scripture so you get good circumstances. It's read scripture so that you are rooted and you will flourish no matter what comes your way. Jesus actually makes the same exact comparison at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. It's literally the last thing he talks about. He paints this picture of the man who built his house on the rock. You remember this? We'll talk about this in like March. But he paints this picture of the man who builds his house on the rock. There's a man on the sand. There's a man on the rock. Guess what? The storm comes for both of them. The difference is not that the man on the sand got rained on and the man on the rock had sunny days all the time. The difference is that the man on the rock continued to flourish no matter what came at him. You see that? Okay? Because his life, is what we sang about earlier, his life is built on a firm foundation. And so I'm going to argue this morning that when you're reading the Beatitudes, you need to read them the exact same way. I think Jesus is doing something intentional here. The first thing he starts with in the sermon is the Beatitudes. The final thing is the man on the rock. I think they're saying the exact same thing. This is how you live the good life. Even when the outside culture, even when the outside world would look at you and say, you are cursed, you will continue to flourish. So let me just read these, these Beatitudes. I'm just going to replace that first word, blessed, with flourishing. It's a synonym, okay? It's a synonym of this word, makarios. And let's read it like that. It says this, flourishing are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Flourishing are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
Flourishing are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Flourishing are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Flourishing are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Flourishing are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Flourishing are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Flourishing are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do you see how countercultural that is? Because every time I said flourishing, it was followed up by something that we would read and say, that's not flourishing. Like, that's not what the advertisements are selling. They're not selling meekness, right? Like, if if this is your life, what's described in this passage, if this is your life, I'm telling you, the world is going to look at you and say, you need to do something different. You're cursed, right? Like, that's a horrible life is what they're going to say. But that's exactly Jesus' point. Our definition of what it means to flourish is completely off. Our definition of what the good life is is completely off. And let me point this out, okay? There is not a hypocritical bone in Jesus' body because he lived this, right? Like, he's not preaching this and then living a different life. He's preaching this and he's living it out. The Beatitudes all come together in the life of Jesus, who was humble, meek, a man who mourned and wept. He was merciful. He was peacemaking. His invitation to us is to live this kind of life. That's the cost of discipleship. It's not a life that's easy. It's not a life of acclaim and fame. Jesus died and there were 120 people left. It's this kind of life that he's inviting us into. So the question we're left with, and this is how I'll close. The question we're left with is the same question I started with. And I want you to think about this. I'm going to give you a little bit of time here in a little bit to actually pray about this and think about this. Here's what you need to ask yourself. Did Jesus know what he was talking about? Okay. When you wake up in the morning and you try to live the good life, does Jesus know what that is? Does Jesus know what it means to live a life of abundance? Is he telling the truth that radically reorienting your life around him and the Sermon on the Mount is actually how to live the best life you can possibly live? Is he telling the truth? That's what you have to ask. I was listening to a podcast this week um, on J.K. Rowling, and so author of Harry Potter. And the, the podcast isn't about Harry Potter. It's actually about this cultural moment that we're in and some of the uh, some of the controversy that she's been in over the last few years. Really interesting podcast, but she, but she had this one line that stuck out to me when they were interviewing her. I thought it was really, really went along with this. Um, when, when Harry Potter, the books were coming out, and it was really at the height of its fame, uh, the internet was also rising in popularity. And so there were these websites that popped up where people would get on and they would talk about Harry Potter, and they would, they would bring their theories of the storyline and where it's going and what the characters were doing and all these things. And J.K. Rowling got the idea, I'm going to get on and engage with these people. That'll be fun. <laughs> and so she logs onto this site. She makes herself a username. 
She gets on and she starts writing to people on this site and entering into these conversations. Now, here's what's interesting. None of them knew that she was J.K. Rowling. <laughs> no one knew who they were talking to. Here's what else is interesting. Eventually, after a few weeks of engaging with these people, she, be she began to get called names. She was then told that she was stupid. People asked if she had ever even read Harry Potter before. And they told her, they literally together voted to kick her off the site because they felt like she was too ignorant to engage with them on this topic. Okay? The one who had created the entire world was too ignorant to engage with them about Harry Potter. Okay? So that's the question. Who is Jesus? <laughs> who are you talking to? Are you talking to the one who created everything, the one who actually knows best, the one who knows what it means to be actually be satisfied, to actually have the life we're looking for? Or are you talking to a crazy preacher from 2,000 years ago who knows nothing about what it's like to live in 2023? That's the question you have to ask as we go into the Sermon on the Mount. For what it's worth, if I put my cards on the table, I think he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> I've seen it play out throughout my whole life, even when I didn't understand it. I've seen how good he is, that he actually knows better than me. I've seen it in the lives of others, that true life is found in him. Right? True life is found in him. So let me pray, and then we're going to go into just a time of communion, a time to remember. Dear Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the Sermon on the Mount that we are about to, to enter into studying. I pray that you will just convince us as we open up this word. I pray that you will convince us that this is the good life. That all the other siren calls of the world can be ignored. That this is life to the full. And Lord, I thank you. I thank you that you have made a way. That's what we're about to celebrate here. That you have made a way for us to enter your kingdom. That you have made a way for us to actually be your disciples and live the way you lived. Lord, I pray that you will just give us strength to do it. Give us the vision to do it. Give us the power to do it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so if you will, grab your cup here. It's appropriate that this morning we would come together and remember communion. Because as I said... And I hope that you heard this morning, Jesus is someone to imitate with our whole lives, right? He's someone who we are called to live like, to look like, to follow, to live out his words, to live how he lived. But here's the other thing I, I, I want you to, to make clear, and I hope I made this clear. He's not just that. He's not just something to imitate, someone to imitate. If he was only someone to imitate, that would completely crush us. But praise not God, he's not only that. He's also not just someone to imitate. He's also our substitute. <laughs> he's also the one who lived the life we couldn't live, the one who died the death that we deserve, the one who rose again to defeat death, and the one who gives us the power to follow anything out because it only comes from him. And so that's what we remember as we take communion this morning. And so let's start with the bread. The Bible tells us that the night of his betrayal when he would soon be heading to the cross, Jesus was with his disciples having a meal. 
And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to only take a few minutes just to give you some space here, just to pray, just to talk to God. I hope I've made clear the cost of discipleship, right? the cost of what it means to actually follow Jesus, and also the cost of non-discipleship. Because I just want you to, to pray, talk to God, talk about where you've fallen short, but also ask yourselves as we go into the study on the Sermon on the Mount, does Jesus know what he's talking about? Am I living like he knows what he's talking about? So as Daniel just sings over us here for a few minutes, let's just spend some time in prayer, praying, spending time with God, asking him. If, if you say, hey, I haven't been believing that, ask him to change your heart. Let's pray.